I thought and still think that he, more than anyone I know or have ever heard, plays the steel string guitar the way it should be played, and it's really incredible. I'm Jessica Hopper. I'm from KCRW. This is Lost Notes. John Fahey has long been heralded as a genius. He's a master of the steel string guitar and a pioneer of what's called American Primitive. He started putting out his own records in 1959, just him playing acoustic guitar. And by the 1970s, he had a cult following. By the early 1990s, Fahey's work was being rediscovered, and his music was being championed by the likes of Sonic Youth, Beck, Pete Townsend. By then, Fahey had gone electric and turned towards 20th century classical music. Some of these later records were decidedly difficult. But so was Fahey. I'm literally listening to women talk about how he was bad to them, and also I'm enjoying his music like, Should I not be listening to it? This is Carla Green, a reporter with KCRW. Famous men generally, it doesn't happen often that their story gets told through the eyes of the women that they interacted with or the women that they loved. And that, you know, complicates the legacy of men like Fahey, and I think that it should. So that made me want to do the story of John Fahey, but through the eyes of the women who, like, knew and who loved him. Right now, there's a lot of discussion of how to deal with problematic artists. But for the women in John Fahey's life, their own reconciliation of Fahey the artist and the Fahey that they knew is, at best, complicated. He could be a charming romantic one day and a cruel bully the next. The women themselves, the women who had this experience, I don't think would say that they were in abusive relationships with Fahey. I don't think. The ways that Fahey could be terrible could be much more subtle. And I think that it's really important to talk about these things because they're complicated and because knowing how to feel about them is complicated. This is A Room Full of Flowers from Carla Green. Stick around. We used to go on record collecting trips through the South. So we had this station wagon and we had a pile of old records in the back seat. The other thing we did, though, is uh, pick up turtles along the highway. So there were always turtles crawling around on the floor of the car. Big ones or little ones? Mm -hmm. Yeah, six or eight inches sometimes, sometimes little ones. Or we'd move them across the road so they wouldn't get hit. I'm Janet Fahey, John Fahey's first wife. We were married from 1967 to 1973. I mean, we were both at UCLA. I was very into the folk scene. I played guitar. And I had seen him at parties, sometimes playing, sometimes propped up drunk against the wall. I think our first date was a gig that he was playing at UC Santa Barbara. So we drove up together and, well, I was overwhelmed. I was this little... 20-year-old, you know, and he was a semi-famous guitarist, and you want me, little me? And he was brilliant and interesting and creative and iconoclastic, so he was pretty dazzling for a, you know, a 20-year-old. 
After that first date, there's another date, then another. Janet and Fahey end up moving in together, getting married. It was interesting, Janet says. One time, John went into a pet shop and thought the turtles weren't being taken care of properly. So he bought them all and brought them home. And so for a while, our bathtub was full of water and turtles. At one point, Janet says, they had a snapping turtle. Big. Big. And uh, he thought it was funny to try and make it bite me. No. Yes. That really hurts, doesn't it, when they bite you? Oh, they could take your hand off. He did it while he was asleep. No, I mean, there were times he was not nice to me. He really wasn't. Janet says there was bad mixed with the good, but also good mixed with the bad. Like the time they got invited to Rome so Fahey could record music for an Antonioni film. Janet had been excited to see the Colosseum. She'd never been to Rome. But Fahey decided it wasn't working with Antonioni. So they left basically as soon as Janet arrived. He later wrote a fictionalized version of what happened in his book, How Bluegrass Music Destroyed My Life. In the book, the story ends with him punching Antonioni. That never happened. Janet says. I think he liked to invent reality because he was not happy with the real thing. He liked to have sort of dreamlike sequences in his life. And I'm the opposite. I'm the scientist. You like to be grounded in facts? I'm more grounded. Finally, after about five years, Janet and Fahey separate. There wasn't one thing that set her off, Janet says, just a mounting list of differences that had grown too great. John was a mystic and a religious guy. You know, his politics were right-wing. I am none of that. He had an alcohol problem. He had a drug problem. It was rough. And there were just a lot of fundamental differences. There's this idea that really good, powerful art has to come from a troubled place, the trope of the tortured artist. It's molded our understanding of what is acceptable behavior, how much an artist should suffer, how much the people around them should suffer. People who knew Fahey said that sometimes he was a delight to be around. He could be funny, brilliant, generous, and warm. But throughout his life, Fahey undeniably suffered, punished his body with drugs and alcohol. And sometimes... He'd inflict that suffering on the people around him. I'm an artist, and John's an artist, and we understood each other pretty well, which a lot of people don't. And, like, one time I brought over this whole bag of blocks, and I was playing with them on the floor, and he started playing with them on the floor, doing something that little kids would do. This is Melody Fahey. Melody's got long, straight, kind of wild gray hair, walks with a cane. But she's still got this childlike way about her. She loves beads, loves collecting them. Oh, a butterfly. It's gone now. Melody and Fahey meet when she ends up at one of Fahey's shows, on a date, with her boyfriend at the time. It's the fall of 1975. You know, I like music, but I didn't know about his music. She ends up seeing him again. And then again. Oh, I came home from work one day, and there was flowers everywhere. There were all these different bouquets of flowers. They said, they're all for you. And so they had to help me and march all the flowers over to my 
house, which then for a week or so kind of resembled a funeral. <laughs> there were so many flowers. At one point, Fahey sends Melody his paycheck. Endorsed. <laughs> and How much was it? It was hardly anything. It was like $150. I used to put um, funny messages on my message machine, heavy breathing and stuff like that. What did you think about that? I thought, that's John. Did you think, did you find it charming? Did you find it creepy? Um, John had a special um, charisma that nobody else had. It was like his aura was bigger than everybody else's. Fahey and Melody eventually get married at Melody's parents' house in Los Angeles. And they go on to have this kind of dreamy life together. One time, they stumble across a parade with a live elephant tied to a tree. There really wasn't much between that elephant and us. Nothing at all, really. John got you into lots of strange situations that other people wouldn't. Melody and Fahey are best friends, she says. They love to play together. John went in the backyard and started meowing. And he meowed and meowed and meowed. And a calico cat came into the backyard. And he said, here's our cat. Later, he gets another cat, who he calls Nefertiti. And Nefertiti would come and sit in his guitar case. And he'd close the guitar case on her and leave it like that and practice some more. And then he'd open it and she'd jump out and she'd run away. How long would he leave her inside there for? More than I would want to be left in a locked up space, but she'd come right back and get in there again. And they'd do the same thing over again. And they'd do that over and over and over again. And uh, I guess Nefertiti was sort of a masochist and he was a sadist. Not long after they get married, Fahey and Melody move to Salem, Oregon, to the house where she still lives. Little blue house with a beautiful, wild-looking garden outside. She took me to see it. And so where are we? We're right by my house. Right here, this blue and white house. When she lived there with Fahey, Melody says she would sometimes find letters left around the house. Letters that Fahey had written. Love letters. To other women. Well, I think he would fell in love all the time. He could fall in love, you know, three times a week. Well, John told me that before we got married, when we were dating, you know, he said, well, you know, this is, this is going to be hard for you. He warned me, you know. And what did you think about that when he said that? Well, I, I believed him. <laughs> I believed him. I, I was never aware of him actually pursuing any of his fantasies, but he had plenty of them. So if, if he was, if I were, wasn't aware of them then, I don't want to be aware of them now. So if you hear anything to the contrary, don't tell me. I won't. (laughs) Anyway, uh, he left me, and I couldn't contact him. One day, after a period of fighting, Melody says Fahey abruptly leaves. She's frantic. She's got no money. And Fahey serves her with divorce papers. She tries to find him, talk it through, but she can't find him anywhere. She gets a lawyer. 
I was very angry and very hurt and uh, I felt like half of my body had been taken away from me. You know, it was just a terrible feeling. Melody says that Fahey disappeared for about a month after he served her with divorce papers. And then, she says, he resurfaces. He starts calling Melody, sometimes saying that he thinks maybe they shouldn't get divorced after all. But it was too late, Melody says. She'd already hired a divorce attorney. Didn't feel like she could trust him. And then, Melody says, there were the other kinds of calls. Less conciliatory ones. What kind of threats? Well, I'd rather not go into that, I think. Because I don't believe he ever, it was just talk, you know. But it was talk that I could repeat to a judge and get an injunction. Let's just put it that way. When he died, um, one of the things that was in his car was a pistol, you know. And although I didn't think he was the type to really be that uncontrolled in anger, you know, he could have anger, but not that uncontrolled. Would he get angry sometimes? Yeah. When a person has a big personality, everything they do seems bigger than what other people do. And that's kind of the way he was. But anyway, after I let the um, injunction expire, he was still, you know, getting in touch with me. Would he ever do the breathing on the answering machine? No, he didn't do any of that anymore. That was that was when we were first dating. <laughs> that was that was the seduction period of the relationship. <laughs> yeah, that was the courting. <laughs> oh, anyway, it can be a glamorous, wonderful thing to be close to a brilliant artist. It can also be a crushing burden supporting them, and sometimes it can be both at one time. Difficult to be around them, but also difficult to let them go. I had spent many years of my life trying to play the guitar like John Fahey. It's the late 1990s, and John Fahey is in the middle of a serious professional resurgence. After years of languishing in relative obscurity, he's become almost a living legend. Melissa Stevenson has been a Fahey fan for forever, goes to see him play any chance she gets. I thought and still think that he, more than anyone I know or have ever heard, plays the steel string guitar the way it should be played, and it's really incredible. Learning to play the steel string guitar, listening to Fahey's music, it's an escape from her high-pressure life. At that time, I had a job. Um, I had my own business as a high-tech recruiter in Silicon Valley, and I worked on the phone. Um, I had my office in my house, which I owned. I was indeed in a position where I could do just about anything I wanted to do. So one day, when she finds out that he's playing a show in Berkeley, she drops everything to go. And at intermission, she goes up to talk to him. By this point, Fahey's got a big belly, gone bald on the top of his head, big white beard. He kind of looked over my head a little bit and said, call me. And I felt this, I felt something 
hitting my hand, and I looked down, and there was a business card there, and it was in John's hand. So I thought, oh. Well, I didn't think he was talking to me. I really didn't. Because why would he be talking to me? That's ridiculous. And then I heard him say, call me. (laughs) It was a sweet moment in a funny way. At the end of the show, he went backstage, put his guitar away, and then came back out to mingle with the crowd. And he shouted across the room, don't forget, in this booming voice. And uh, so I said, okay. I idolized him. I wouldn't say he was my type, but he was John Fahey. He was a great guitar player brilliant musician and he was trying to pick me up so yeah that made him kind of kind of interesting (laughs) you know so melissa calls and calls turns out the business card isn't really Fahey's. it's for the front desk of a motel the woodburn inn where he's living at the time and then a week or two later he calls back he didn't really identify himself he just kind of said well hi i got your message In that phone call, Fahey asks Melissa to move to Oregon to be with him. And he'd only met you really that one time. He had only met me that one time. He never asked me if I was single or not or if I was available. Melissa hangs up the phone. And suddenly, everything is different. Having John approach me that way opened up a possibility of something else different that I could do with my life. And I think anybody who knew me then or could see what I was up to at that time would see that that was part of the deal. It was like an opening to to go off and do something new. And what a treat. Then um, one day there was a knock on the door and somebody delivered two dozen red roses. Well, come to find out later on down the road, that's one of his favorite ways to woo a lady is to send them flowers. Nevertheless, it was really amazing to get two dozen red roses. What did you do with them? I put them in the middle of the kitchen table and just looked at them. So Melissa considers it. She decides to go to Oregon to spend some time with him in his motel room at the Woodburn Inn, see if she could really move there. I thought it was hilarious. Here's this guy, John Fahey, one of the world's greatest guitar players, definitely one of the world's greatest composers for the steel string guitar and there he is living in this filthy motel room when I walked into the motel room I was up to my knees in trash food containers from takeout food he had a lot of books in the room what else was there he had a typewriter or two Had I said no to this invitation from John Fahey, I would have for the rest of my life wondered what I had missed. And so that's mainly the reason why I did it. Anybody would do it. So Melissa packs up her life in California and moves to Oregon. Everything about this whole relationship was so different from the start. When did you find out about the other women? Like how soon after you moved to Oregon did you find out about the other women? Not the notes to the other women, but other women. Other women? Yeah. Um, I would say within days of living with him. I mean, he moved in. He moved into the house and everything was normal for a couple of days. Normal by my standards. 
And then um, he began talking about all these other women who were in Beaverton or who in he was Seattle. dating. You know, he, he was dating them or he was in love with them. And I, was, I thought that was really strange that he would invite a woman to live with him and then do that. I've never in my life met any, any man who did that so unabashedly. And then there were the love letters. Some of these lines are so classic. No more the moon shines on among the field of cotton, the old howl hooting like a horn. The gray hills are gone every day. I can only hear the whippoorwills. Last night a tiger came into my room, and you know what that means. <laughs> I'm fasting on potatoes, peas, and dried lawn grass and water until you come to me. I mean, it's so romantic. Don't you think? Yeah. At first it disturbed me because it made me, you know, it made me jealous for a moment. And then I thought, wow, this guy just does it. It happened so frequently that I thought, oh, well, this is something about him. I'm learning. I'm learning this is what he does. And I feel so fortunate that I ran into this one. And he wrote it in one of my personal notebooks. A love letter to someone else. A love, a love letter to someone else. But it wasn't that he thought that he, it wasn't that he knew that was my personal notebook. It was just a pad of paper that he happened to pick up and started writing in it. Um, Do you think this person is real, this person that he's writing to? Yes. But I would bet you anything that she doesn't know anything about John. And never had a, a feeling for him at all. He became obsessed with trashing me. Uh, and he would spend every waking moment walking around town in Salem saying horrible things about me to anybody he encountered. And he would go off on this story about this horrible woman that he knows. And it was me. It was bad. Uh, I've never in my life had anybody do that to me before. I've never seen anybody do it to somebody else. So I really didn't know what to do. But despite all this, Melissa is still a huge fan of his music. And Melissa says Fahey starts moving in and out of the house that they share in Salem. They're together, then they aren't. Then one day he shows up and she lets him in again. He's still drinking heavily. He records an entire album in the guest room without her knowing. Itomi named for a Japanese woman he met on tour and fell in love with. He played Artie Shaw's Nightmare day and night over and over and over and over and over again. Even the neighbors came over to tell him to shut up. It was all this really dark, gloomy blues music. And I finally went in and asked him if he could please play something a little more upbeat. Um, <laughs> Did he stop? No, he stopped for a day or two and started playing Artie Shaw again. And did you did did you love him like or how? Did I love him? Mm-hmm. No. Uh uh-uh. uh. I love, I love him, I loved him, and I love him still in the way that all humans love each other. I told him, the front door's open, man, this house is as much yours as it is mine. And uh, he marched on out, and I thought, oh, good riddance. 
But yeah, he, he came back. It would have been fine with me if he didn't. It was problematic that he did. It, the same old stuff began again. Do you think that he ever loved you? Um, I think there were things about me that he, he was accepting of, yeah. One day, Fahey calls up Melissa. He's stranded on the side of the road in Washington, on the way to a show, a few hours from their house in Salem. He asks her to come pick him up. But when she gets there, she can't find him. Anywhere. It turned out his car was not broken down. He had simply called me to bother me, I think, and he'd driven all the way to Yakima. So he was never broken down in Hood River? I don't think he was ever broken down in Hood River. And I finally, it finally like, oh, wait, this is a revenge thing. That is something Fahey would do, Melissa says. Come up with these elaborate ways to get revenge on her. What he was getting revenge for was never exactly clear. So this time, on the side of the road in Washington, Melissa figures it out. This is a revenge thing. But then, instead of just going home, she tries to salvage the situation. Try to make it not feel like a big waste. Except... The situation isn't salvageable. It just keeps escalating. This is how Melissa's relationship with Fahey ended. So the girl who answered the phone at the Chinese restaurant, I could hear John in the background saying, tell her I don't want to talk to her. And I said, listen, just put him on the phone. So she did. And uh, he said, well, you know what? As long as you've gotten that far, do you want to come to, yeah, come, why don't you come on up to Yakima and you can stay with me in the motel room. I've got a room all set up. I said, okay. So, a stupid thing to do. So I went over to the motel where he was staying. He had instructed the people at the front desk that if a woman named Melissa comes in, do not let her in. Why would he invite me to come up to Yakima for the gig and to stay with him? It sounded like he was trying to make it up to me somehow that I'd driven the Hood River for no reason. And were you mad? Like, when, when you called him on the phone, you were, ang- were you angry? Yeah. But he kind of placated you by saying, come. He invited me to the gig. Yeah. And you were like, okay, maybe this is. Yeah. Me. I wanted to see it. Yeah. yeah. And You're uh, still a fan. I was still a fan. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, John Fahey gig. Don't mind if I do. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming. <laughs> so I went to the gig. And the guy that was selling tickets at the table at the door said, oh, are you Melissa Stevenson? And I said, yeah. He said, I've been told that you aren't to come in because he, we don't want any trouble in here. I said, just give me my money back. I'm out of here. And that was it. That was the end of my relationship with John. This whole time, Melissa has had this website, a digital monument to Fahey, johnfahey.com. It still exists. It's got old pictures of him, articles about him, reviews of his music. I I described the um, internet to him like this. Anybody in the whole world can see what you put up here. 
And then he got this idea that everybody in the whole world was seeing everything like it was being broadcast in their brains. <laughs> like a Truman Show. <laughs> this all happened in the mid to late 1990s, the midst of Fahey's comeback, both as a musician and a painter. His music got reissued and rediscovered. He had new record deals. He went electric. For the first time in decades, his music was being celebrated. Musicians like Pete Townsend of The Who, Sonic Youth, and Beck were citing him as an influence, seeking him out as a collaborator. People were writing about him in mainstream magazines like Entertainment Weekly and Rolling Stone. He started a record label for obscure avant-garde recordings. And in 1997, 38 years into his own recording career, he won a Grammy for liner notes. Later on, I found out that he, he wasn't impressed with that Grammy at all anyway. So he thought he should get a Grammy for music. And then he dies in 2001. He'd been sick for a while, diabetes, alcoholism, Epstein-Barr virus. He was 61, just over a week short of his 62nd birthday. There was nothing about, nothing he did toward me or to me that was ever going to change my appreciation and admiration for his work. Melissa still runs Fahey's website. She's become the keeper of his digital memory. And it's not just the digital memory she keeps. She's got a framed photo of him on her wall, and she's got bags and bags of his stuff in her house. What do you think the stand, these stains are? Iced tea. This jumbled mess of writings, receipts, stained napkins covered with scribbles. He drank a lot of iced tea. He said it made him happy. Tea makes you happy, he said. And I, and I drank some iced tea to test it out, and I thought he was right. Melissa has become John Fahey's de facto archivist, which in some ways makes no sense at all especially because some of the things Melissa's kept are reminders, evidence of how Fahey treated her. Love letters to other women. Tirades against her. But in other ways, it makes all the sense in the world. If Fahey has a number one fan, it might be Melissa. She's the obvious keeper of his scraps of paper and old collages. Because to Melissa, this stuff that someone else might consider junk is treasure, valuable precious runoff of a brilliant mind. This is from a letter she found in her Fahey storage. Oh, this is like a, this has some mean stuff about you in it. Really? Good, yeah. what's it say? It says, Dear Akira, I'm happy that you like my something. Here are some more painful, free. Please do not correspond with Melissa anymore. She is not my friend, I despise her. Uh -huh. She runs my website for me. I try to get rid of her because she cheats me. Mm -hmm. She's dishonest, uneducated, mm -hmm. stupid. Yeah. Do you want me to keep reading this? Yeah. Has no taste of, is ugly, but she will not stop running the website even though I ask her again and again. Really, it is her website. I have no control over her or the website. It is not my website. She pays me no money. And I sold her about 300 paintings at 2 to $5 a piece so I could... Send a ticket to a very beautiful girl named Hitomi and I to fly her over here. And we got along wonderfully, but it turned out she was married. Hitomi, the Japanese woman Fahey met on tour and fell in love with, named his last album after. What? Ah, 
I did not know she was married. He didn't ever ask, I'm sure. Her family hated me and she disappeared. This is very sad because I loved her very much and thought she is a nice girl, but she, quote, did me wrong. I am only recovering now from, quote, broken heart from grief. Here are some paintings. I hope you like them. I am more respected and loved in Japan as a musician and painter than in the USA. Can you help me? It's okay if you can't. I'll still send you paintings and music. Your friend, John Fahey. <laughs> nice, huh? Yeah, that's what he would say. That's, that's what he would say about me. And he did it all day, every day. It's cruel. Uh, it's stupid. It's untrue. And it is immature. And sicko. I interviewed Melody and Melissa together at Melissa's house in Salem. Melody came over after a long phone call about what we would eat and who would bring which ingredients. We end up having a barbecue. Melissa and I go to the store to buy all the ingredients. Here we are, another John Fahey session. <laughs> they just keep coming. Melody and Melissa are friends. Melissa says Melody actually helped support her through some of the shit that Fahey put her through. Got it the way that almost no one else could. But sometimes, they're at odds with each other. He once told me he didn't want to be a monster. And when they get together, they switch between reminiscing and bickering over his memory. You're interrupting me. Sorry. (laughs) But then, a couple minutes later, the moment would pass. They'd be friends again. Proper nouns are hard. Probably because I've been suppressing things so long. (laughs) My whole life I've been suppressing things. And now they're coming out? No, it's just that they're permanently (laughs) suppressed. Melody has a long-term partner who she's been with for 20 years now. It's been decades since she and Fahey were together. But she's kept his name. She helps run a Facebook group about him. He told me, you know that horrible picture of him? Well, he couldn't have been a monster to you because you weren't married to him. And see, he could have run up all these bills. Fahey looms large. He leaves this indelible mark on the people he comes into contact with. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, and oftentimes for both. On the cosmic scales of good and bad, or whatever you want to call it, it's hard to know where to place John Fahey. I don't know if anyone who met him wishes that they hadn't. This is the story of John Fahey told by the women closest to him. But that's the thing. I never would have spoken to Melissa or Melody or Janet if they hadn't known and cared for him. All three women have their own strange and interesting life stories. And yet, just knowing and being with John Fahey is one of the most remarkable things they've ever done. And Melody and Melissa don't want to forget him. Janet, his first wife, she's different. By the time John died in 2001, I hadn't thought about him in 30 years. But I saw, I found an article that said he was homeless and living in a men's shelter in Salem, and I felt horrible. Because I didn't wish him ill, I just didn't want him with me anymore. So I felt really bad. But I didn't try to find him, I didn't, you know, it was over. It was really over. After Janet and Fahey break up, 
she goes on to have a long and full life untouched by Fahey. She's retired now, but she worked as a biologist, a consultant. She laughs easily. She's got a matter-of-fact scientist way of talking, looking at the world. Janet has kept Fahey's last name. Maybe she doesn't want to forget John Fahey. But also, he hasn't defined her life. There was good. There was bad. Now it's over. Pretty much anyone who knew Fahey will say that his personal life was complicated, marked by a whole lot of self-inflicted harm and inflicted on others' harm. But there's one thing about Fahey that was uncomplicatedly good. You know, with all of this, his music is the best part of him, you know? And I don't quibble with that. I'll never quibble with that. It's terrific music. It's wonderful. And all this other stuff is, you know, it's interesting anecdotes, but that's really, that's really the best of him. This episode was produced by Carla Green. If you'd like to listen to the longer conversation that Carl and I had about John Fahey's legacy, we have a bonus episode coming out later this week. Make sure you're subscribed to Lost Notes and check it out. Carla works on KCRW's storytelling podcast, Unfictional, and you can hear more of her stories there. Special thanks to Woodrow Curry and Frank Green. Original music in this episode was performed by Matthew Hale Clark. Lost Notes is produced by Mike Dodge Weisskopf. Our associate producer is Paulina Velasco. The executive producer for this season is me, Jessica Hopper. Nick White is the creator and executive producer of Lost Notes. Our show is made with the support of KCRW's Independent Producer Project. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by using the hashtag Lost Notes. Next week, the story of a jazz pianist who lived with a secret his whole life. Society made him invisible. The rules of society made it so that in order for him to exist, he had to leave no trace. Even with receding from the spotlight, going to a small town, sort of reverse engineering his climb towards fame because it would have cost him, you know, everything else. I'm Jessica Hopper. Thanks for listening.